to Women Transcend. I'm Jennifer Todd, and this is a podcast that explores issues that affect women and girls worldwide. Each episode, we dive into a topic of national or international significance and discuss the particular impact on women and girls and how they're able to overcome or transcend. In this episode of Women Transcend, we are going to try to demystify Islam. This is the second in my two-part series focusing on demystifying Islam. So if you haven't had a chance, I would encourage you to listen to my podcast focused on demystifying the hijab. When I decided to do this two-part series, I'm going to be honest, it was a little out of my comfort zone. Sure, I have Muslim friends, I work with Muslims, but I had never actually had a conversation with any of them about what it meant to be a Muslim. What are your beliefs and how are they different from mine? How are they similar? And right now, in this point in history, how do you feel about the world? Are you afraid? Because honestly, I am afraid. What I found when I took that first step to open a dialogue, not only did I learn a great deal about Islam, but I learned a great deal about our assumptions and popular misconceptions about Islam. I had the great privilege of talking with some amazing women for these podcasts who were incandescently positive, despite the rancor, xenophobia, and nationalism going on in our society. I will, of course, admit here that the women I spoke with for this two-part series were amazing women who were willing to share with me their thoughts and experiences as Islamic women. But they don't reflect every single Islamic woman in the world. There are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, about 23% of the world's population. Certainly you couldn't summarize that experience of 1.6 billion people, or even half that, just the women, in a tidy 20-minute podcast. I absolutely do not want to gloss over the fact that there are very real cultural issues conflating the true experience of Islamic women and girls and their status in some countries. I do not want to minimize that very real experience at all. But as the women I spoke with have indicated, there are cultural issues and there are religious issues, and sometimes the two can't be neatly separated. So for background, what is the experience of Muslims and Muslim women in this country? Pew Research released a report that showed that anti-Muslim assaults and intimidation crimes are now at the level we saw in 2001, immediately after the terror attacks that brought down the Twin Towers in New York. This is a 67% increase in a single year. Not very promising. Americans seem to know this is going on as well, as 76% of people reported that they feel that discrimination of Muslims is increasing. About 1% of the U.S. population is Muslim, or about 3.3 million people, a rather small percentage of the population overall. How much do Americans know about their Muslim neighbors? Well, about 49% reported to a Pew Research poll that they thought at least some of the Muslims in the United States are anti-American. 
But alarmingly, 11% of Americans reported that most or all of the Muslims in the U.S. are anti-American. In some very recent data, the Southern Poverty Law Center reports that in the five days following the election of Donald Trump, there were 30 reported cases of anti-Muslim violence. So that is the current backdrop for our discussion and this podcast. Also part of this backdrop is Trump's proposed Muslim ban and Muslim registry in the United States. A Reuters poll seems to show that about 48% of Americans support a ban on new Muslim immigration, though I actually find the poll was a little sloppy and unreliable, so I'm not sure about those numbers. But okay, so very crudely and roughly, I will summarize. Why are we so afraid of Muslims? One of the reasons is the media coverage of Muslims and our subsequent misconceptions about Muslims, which have been perpetuated and caused some unfortunate myths. All right, let's look at these myths then. Myth, all terrorist attacks in the U.S. are carried out by Muslims. Fact, data clearly indicate this is not true. In fact, since September 11th, 33 Americans were killed in terror attacks by Muslims. In that same time, 180,000 Americans were murdered for reasons unrelated to terrorism. Myth. Muslims want to take over the U.S. and replace the government with Sharia law. So let's just take a second and look at the numbers. Muslims make up about 1% of the overall population of the United States. I'll leave it there for you to contemplate. And spoiler alert, I discussed this with today's interview guest. And it turns out you have nothing to fear. Myth. Islam is a violent religion. Fact. Five of the 12 people who have won the most recent Nobel Peace Prizes were Muslims. Muslims actually play an important role in fighting terrorism right here in the United States and abroad. Myth. Islam subjugates women. Fact. Muslim American women hold more postgraduate degrees than Muslim American men. Okay, so those are some of the most predominant misconceptions in the United States about Islam. I hope you will contemplate not just the data and information I have presented, but the powerful discussion I had with my guest. I really want to encourage you to take a chance, step out of your comfort zone and start a conversation or even a dialogue with someone of a different faith, maybe even a Muslim. It's a little scary, but I promise you it's worth it. So coming up next, my interview with Hasana. She is a graduate student in religious studies at University of California, Riverside, and a modest fashion blogger. And she is a Muslim. And welcome to Women Transcend, Hasana. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have this discussion with you. I understand that you are a PhD student in religious studies, and I am anxious to discuss Islam with you. So can you tell me how long have you been a Muslim? 
So I was actually born and raised a Muslim. Um, my mother is actually, she was a Christian who converted to Islam. Uh, and my father, um, he was, uh, you know, a born Muslim. Okay. So yeah, I've been Muslim all my life. Okay. And so you were, you were raised as a Muslim and you've pra- always practiced Islam in your home. Yes, I have. Mm-hmm. Okay. So part of the practice for Islamic women is to practice modesty or to cover their heads. Can you tell me a little bit about the hijab and what it means to you? Sure. So the hijab is a headscarf that many Muslim women wear uh, out of religious obligation, first and foremost. Um, Islam requires that of us um, as a way of protecting um, women. And also, I always like to say it, it keeps us, it keeps our morality in check as well. And this is not actually a foreign practice. This is actually a common uh, denominator between the Abrahamic faith, which is Judaism and Christianity and, and Islam. And the way that I like to describe hijab in common terms, I actually had an encounter when I was in the uh, in the airplane a few weeks ago, and someone just turned to me and said, "What's that thing on your head?" And you know, it it was an abrupt question, and I kind of had to like think think twice about it and gather myself. And then I told him, I said, you know, this is a headscarf that Muslim women wear, um, just as the mother of Jesus did. Uh, and we wear it to keep us um, as a symbol of modesty and to keep our morality in check. And he looked at me and said, that's beautiful. And he turned around. And I learned a lot from that experience because I think generally we can be defensive when we are approached with these type of questions. Sure. Because, of course, in some regard, they are intrusive and, and they're kind of very abrupt. But, you know, I, I actually posted this on my Instagram and what I was trying to tell people is that, you know, we, we need to shift our perspective because the truth is a lot of times people just want to know what it is and they don't know how to ask and they don't know what to call it. And what's great is that this is actually more of an opportunity for us as Muslims to kind of understand our religious practices more so than it is for the non-Muslim understanding the, the, these practices. Because I think a lot of times we ourselves don't know how to articulate why it is we do certain things. And so these encounters actually force us to kind of look back into the religion and understand more about the practice and and, and come up with a vocabulary to help us kind of articulate what it is. Uh-huh. And so I feel like when you view it that way, that it's really not just an opportunity to teach someone else, but to renew our kind of understanding of what it is, it becomes more helpful and, and, and you're not on the defense. That is, first of all, that is not the way that I thought that story was going to go, but I'm, I'm <laughs> glad to hear that. And what a wonderful way that you framed it. Thank you for that. Um, Absolutely. So Islam, like Christianity, is monotheistic and Islam worships Allah. Can yes. you explain the difference between the Christian God and the Muslim God? Sure. So uh, we have the concept of the Abrahamic faiths, right? That is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And what brings us together and connects us primarily is that the fact that we are monotheistic, which means we worship one God. Now, the, the I would say that the concept of God in Judaism and Islam is perhaps closer to kind of the understanding of the oneness of God, that you are not to associate God with anyone else. Um, whereas in Christianity, you do have, though it touts itself as a monotheistic religion, you do have the understanding of God as being trifold, right? Uh, which is the idea of the Trinity. Uh-huh. Um, and so you have a God as the, as the Son, God as the Father, and God as the Spirit. 
And that's kind of the main difference between the concept of God and Islam versus Christianity. But God as a term, or Allah um, as a term, really is referring to that main God that the three Abrahamic faiths believe in. Uh-huh. And I think that it's important to make the distinction that the idea of Jesus being the Son of God does not exist in Islam. In Islam, Jesus is a highly revered prophet. In Islam, uh, God is not associated um, with anyone else. He doesn't have kids. He, he does not beget, nor is he begotten, etc. So this mm-hmm. is really the idea of the oneness of Allah. Yeah, okay. But Islam recognizes Jesus as a prophet. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Just okay. not as the son of God. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, gotcha. Americans sometimes think that Muslim women are disempowered or subjugated by their religion or by men in the religion or by their partners or husbands. Is this an accurate portrayal of Islam? You know, I think that what happens um, uh, very often is that we hear of certain examples where what you said is exactly the way that Islam is being implemented, where you have, you know, this strict husband that is forcing his wife to do certain things or to not do certain things. And then we kind of look at that example and kind of homogenize uh, the rest of uh, the entire religion and think that this is a trait uh, or characteristic that is unique to Islam. And this is a huge mistake that a lot of us fall prey to. Islam came to raise the stature of uh, of women. I mean, uh, in pre-Islamic Arabia, the, the status of women was, was, was not good at all. I mean, you had female infanticide. Uh-huh. You had women and slavery, who were being buried, yeah? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Slavery. You had women who were being, you know, buried alive, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, Islam came and said, we are going to raise the status of this woman. And, we're, you know, and the headscarf was one of the distinguishing factors so that people can recognize her visibly and, and make sure to give her the respect that she is entitled now as a believing woman. And so, of course, you have certain areas in the world where, uh, you know, it succumbs to patriarchal understandings of certain interpretations of verses and, you know, and you do see some, you know, the oppression of women happening in, in some pockets of Muslim countries. But the, the essence of the religion absolutely does not oppress its women. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Great. Okay. So is it fair to say that no one forces you to cover your head? So there's a verse in the Quran that says, La ikraha fiddin, right? There is no compulsion in religion. Now, while there are, there are certain um, religious mandates that we need to adhere to, such as prayer, such as fasting the month of Ramadan, such as, you know, wearing the headscarf. And in order for our faith to be complete, we need to, um, you know, uh, fulfill these requirements. But at the end of the day, there's no such thing as forcing someone to do anything. And, and there are many verses in the Quran that the, where the prophet says, or, or the description of the role of the prophet is that he is the messenger. He, his job is solely to convey the message. It is not his job to force conversions. It's not his job to ensure that the people are believing. It's his job solely to re- relay the message. And, and God will deal, you know, with the rest. And so, the idea that, you know, a woman is forced to do this, and of course you see examples of it, is not really rooted in, in the faith. Mm-hmm. It's really more cultural thing that we're seeing manifest. In different cultures, how it is taken from or mistranslated or misused as other religions do as well. Absolutely. Is that, is that fair to say? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So there's been a lot of attention paid recently to Sharia law. 
Can you explain briefly what Sharia is? And if Muslim Americans are looking to overthrow the United States government and replace it with Sharia? What I can say briefly about Sharia law, Sharia is essentially the, 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 the law of God. And it is by no means um, a threat in the United States. Uh-huh. Sharia law means the uh, the rule of the rule of God, the law of God. And many Muslim majority countries, you do have Sharia law being upheld and implemented. But this is not at all a threat in um, America. In fact, Sharia law actually is one of the main talking points that misinformation experts. Um, like to spew to uh, you know encourage the, the the Islamophobic rhetoric and encourage the fear of Muslims when really there's absolutely no statistics or no studies that have shown that Sharia Allah is on the rise in the United States and so we have to be careful to kind of you know not you, let these word these talking points uh, that the misinformation experts try to um, scare the, the general public with exactly um, into thinking that they're actually rooted in any in any legitimate basis uh huh. Can you tell me what your opinion of ISIS is, and is that an Islamic group? If you ask me, I would say that absolutely ISIS is um, not a, an Islamic or a Muslim group. Um, I would say that it is a pseudo-Islamic theology, just as, for example, in the 1960s when we had kind of a nation of Islam, uh, that's kind of how we were introduced to Islam in America, uh-huh. by the African-American community which was a pseudo-Islamic theology, it, it kind of changed the, the, some of the core tenets of the religion, um, but touted itself as kind of the, the, the authentic religion. And it was not. It was not. Uh, yeah. And so we, with ISIS, we have the same exact thing happening. I mean, one of the main verses in the Quran, or one of the main uh, teachings of the Quran, is that you are not to kill an innocent soul. Um, and the punishment for that is, is, is something that's very serious. Uh-huh. And so... You know, ISIS has very much abused, uh, you know, their, 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 this role and have completely, you know, misinterpreted certain verses in the in the Quran to fit their own political and religious agenda. That really, uh, many Muslims will tell you, have absolutely no basis in the religion, uh-huh. and it's it's a, it's an absolute tragedy what ISIS has done in terms of just depicting what it means to be Muslim and trying to assign uh, what they do. Um, with religious, uh, you know, they, they authenticate what they do and they validate what they do uh, in religious scripture. And it's, it's, it's completely, it's complete nonsense. Uh huh. Okay. And then finally, can you just tell me what it means to you to be a Muslim woman? You know, one, the reason why I love wearing the headscarf is because it makes me visibly Muslim. And I, you know, out of deep respect for my religion, because my religion is the, the main part of who I am and essence of my identity, um, I, I love for people to associate any goodness that comes from me with my religion. And that visibility that the headscarf gives me, gives me that opportunity, allows that opportunity. And um, it's, uh, you know, a, a religion where I feel that I've been given so much respect, so many rights, you know, and it's something that I, I, tr- I really want to live up to. Uh-huh. And, you know, my mom, uh, when she converted to Islam, my father ha- had a, has, has his PhD in political science. And my mom was encouraged to get her PhD by my father. Um, and my mom always said, you know, I actually had no plans of getting a PhD, but it was your father that really encouraged me and, and, and allowed me to see that I actually love political science. And she's been a professor now for over 30 years. She absolutely loves it. Um, and so, 
So that's not a subjugated woman. Absolutely, that's not a subjugated yeah. woman. In fact, in 1989, she was on the Phil Donahue show. Um, uh, to I remember counter- that show, yeah. Yes, to, she was uh, the example countering um, uh, Betty Mahmoud, the example of, you know, the woman not without my daughter. That yeah. She, you know, left, had to flee Iran and, and, and uh, take her daughter with, with her to escape the, uh, her husband, um, her Muslim husband. And so I think, to be honest, the, the, the real reason why there's such xenophobia and fear toward the Muslim subject is because, you know, there was a study done by Pew a few years ago that said over 60% of Americans say that they don't know a Muslim. They can't tell you that they know a Muslim. So it makes absolute sense that the majority of these people who believe Islam to be this, you know, uh, this ex- fund, uh, an extreme religion uh-huh. um, would be, you know, believing what they see on the TV because they're not, they don't know Muslims. And the only thing they know is what they're fed in the, in the media. And of yep. course, the media has its own agenda. Yep. Um, and so I really believe that the way to, to, to combat that is to just get to know Muslims. I mean, yes. you have a situation that you have an incident that happened in, in Hartford, Connecticut, in 2015, right after the, uh, the, the Paris terrorist attacks, um, a man who, you know, he was, he shot up a mosque in Connecticut and yes, he was drunk, but he shot up a mosque, um, and was posting all this anti-Muslim hate, um, rhetoric on his Facebook. And after that happened, now he's looking, he's facing up to a year in prison, but the, the, the leaders of that mosque approached him and said, we want to invite you to the mosque to teach you about the true Islam. And he came and he saw, and he was in tears. And he said, really, all these people want is peace. And he said, had I just taken the five minutes to get to know a Muslim, uh-huh. everything would have been different. Yeah. Just five minutes. And so it just shows you that, you know, relationships can really change the mentalities of these people. And it really just humanizes Muslims. Yeah. And all it takes is just stepping outside of your comfort zone just a teeny little bit to say something like, wow, that's a beautiful headscarf. And then you can start a conversation from there. Yeah, and I want you to know that after the reason why, and please don't take this the wrong way, but the reason why I'm actually thankful for um, what has happened with the the executive order on on the immigration ban or the Muslim Mm -hmm. ban is because I and many other Muslim Americans had absolutely no idea the extent of which there is love and support from the non-Muslims all around the country. I mean, um, the, the, the agitation that this ban has caused, um, and all of the street protests that we're witnessing. If you look at the, the demographics of the people, the majority of them are non-Muslims. Yeah. And so we're, we're coming from a time where we thought, oh wow, we are the most hated religious community in America. We're afraid to be visibly Muslim. We're afraid to publicly align ourselves with Muslims to all of a sudden these Silicon Valley and these Fortune 500 corporations and all of these organizations and all these non-Muslims taking the time out of their busy days to come and protest a cause that's not affecting them. But because they know that this, this country was, was, was founded and, 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 is, and, and really touts itself as, you know, the, the, the place for religious unity and religious tolerance and religious freedom. Uh-huh. And so it's kind of renewed our, our sense of confidence in our faith to say, oh, wow, like, the level of support was absolutely uh, incredible to witness. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, what a beautiful and eloquent way to frame something so hateful and negative. And can I just follow up and ask, what must it have been 
like for you to grow up being aware that people didn't like either you or they didn't like your religion? It's honestly, I think it served as perhaps the impetus for why I badly wanted to be kind of an ambassador to my religion uh-huh. because I, you know, it, it was, it hurt me so much to see that how much the religion was misconstrued uh-huh. and misunderstood. And so it really inspired me to want to do what I can to uh, change the narrative and, and let the, the true story of Islam show and uh, be able to be understood in a, in a, in a broader context. Uh-huh. Um, so I guess I have to say that it, it really motivated, it motivated me to be there you know, in the spotlight, in the, you know, uh, in the forefront and do what I can to improve that image. Well, I just have to say, I thank you so much for taking the time to have a discussion with me, an open discussion. And I really appreciate the lovely eloquence that you not just described what it means to you to be a Muslim, but the way that you have framed a time in our history that can only be described as very dark in a positive way. And I really personally appreciate that. And I hope that that one person listens to this and thinks, you know what, I'm going to go and make a friend that I'm, I'm going to step outside my comfort zone and start a conversation. So um, for that, I thank you very much, Hassan. This has really been enlightening for me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dr. Todd. I appreciate you taking the time to kind of shed light on this and and help demystify all of the uh, ideas that people have or preconceived notions people have on um, Islam. I appreciate that a lot. And and really, we are. This is a dark time in history, but there there is a silver lining. That's for sure. Again, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Hasana, hopefully we can get some conversation started. So thanks so much for your time and thanks for joining Women Transcend. Thank you so much. This week's Woman in the Spotlight is Ilhan Omar. Ms. Omar is the first Muslim American woman elected to office in the United States. She was elected to represent the state legislature in Minnesota. She is a Somali-American woman who came to the U.S. in 1995 after spending four years in a refugee camp in Kenya. After her victory, Ms. Omar remarked, this really was a victory for that eight-year-old in that refugee camp. This was a victory for the young woman being forced into child marriage. This was a victory for every person that's been told they have limits on their dreams. Couldn't have said it better, Ms. Omar. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Women Transcend. Be sure to leave a review for us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. That will make it easier for others to find us as well. If you like a particular episode, it's easy to share through Twitter or Facebook. A big thanks to Hasana for joining us today for this fascinating discussion. And to John Philbeck for doing all the fabulous sound artistry. So we sound so good. Tweet us at Women Transcend or follow us on Facebook. We always enjoy hearing from you. That's all for this episode.